All right. Well, I did think that in some ways the topic of um, of just, you know, restory around faith is not quite as sexy as talking about like hell or, you know, sexuality or other hot button issues. So, um, you know, but at the same time, it's like, I was thinking about it, it wouldn't normally be on a list of like hot topics to discuss, but it's kind of like so foundational, I think, to whether or not our faith, uh, you know, having a faith crisis, I think often comes down to what we have conceived that faith should be or how we have been taught to think about faith, depending on the stage of life or faith that we're in. So um, looking forward to just exploring it together. I thought we could just start off by just maybe cast your mind back again to an earlier stage of faith or an earlier stage of life, whether it's when you're a kid or when you were a teenager, um, you might have seen in the, the little video I shared, just the two-minute teaser for tonight, I shared the story of how I remember lots of teenage and kind of young adult Bible studies where there was, you know, we'd sort of every couple months come down around to the topic of how can I know for sure that I'm saved? Does anybody else have that experience or, or anybody else sort of have that kind of framework as a regular part of uh, an earlier faith um, and just yeah we'll just open it up what how did you conceive of faith as a kid or in an earlier stage of life how did you what kind of words would you use to describe what what faith was supposed to be or what it was for you and without judgment just observing what was faith at an earlier stage for me, it would have been if it's written in the Bible, then you believe it. <laughs> and you literally, you know, that old saying, whatever. Uh, and you believe it literally. Mm -hmm. But what from what age? Oh, from what age? Well, see, I, I didn't come from a Christian family. So it was at university that I got. I got hooked in with a bunch of Christians. I actually got injured playing football and the doctor was a Christian and he asked me to a Bible study. So that was it. That's when I started. Wow. About, about 21, 2021. Mm -hmm. So faith at that stage in terms of the Bible was really about just taking things at face value, just a very, um, well, I guess there's a there's just a, there's a, there's a niceness to that simplicity, right? Not having to ask too many difficult questions, but just kind of what it says is what it says. Yeah, I think when I was young, I felt there are some events that happened. And if you look at my Bible, I, I know there's one passage in Jeremiah where I've just scribbled beside it a miracle. And because some interesting things happened to me when I first came of faith, I felt I have to believe all of this. Um, and so, you know, that was that was the start of the journey. Mm. Thanks, Pete. Mm. How about others? Don't think how to sum it up. <laughs> mm. It's a big, big open-ended question, isn't it? Mm. I remember as a very young child in Sunday school. Was we used to go to a United Reformed Church when I was little, like the Methodists. I don't know if you have the URC here. Um, I remember distinctly being told that we should 
we needed to pray at prayer, but it was very meaningful. I remember, I can remember it was an American Sunday school teacher. Couldn't tell you what her name was. Um, but I remember very distinctly praying a prayer and it being very meaningful, not just a, I've got to get myself saved kind of thing. I don't know, I was probably about seven or eight or something. Um, and then I think it, when I was a late teenager that I went to a Pentecostal church for a while and, and it was more like, you know, what you said, Pete, you know, if it's in the Bible and... Yeah um you read it and a lot of kind of we must have faith things to happen there was a lot of prayer for healing and things and and i guess actually given this topic is about doubt my first probably doubt was when i came back from having my gone to college and come back and there was a lady with ms in the in the church and they were praying for her healing and she wasn't getting healing and you know was told you've not got enough faith that's why you're not being healed and 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 that was my first point about mm, i don't believe that probably that's my thing mm. yeah <clears throat> that's conscious kind of thing so around i guess the age of 18 or 19 then um <clears throat> i grew up in traditional church of scotland um in glasgow and it was more tradition. You weren't really challenged to, you know, commit your life to Christ sort of thing. It was just assumed that you had or you, that you had because you came to church, you know. <laughs> and it was a lot of it was about tradition. And then I was in Crusaders, which was like a Christian youth organization, which was a bit like Christian scouts, I suppose. It was great. Uh, I think I really kind of got on fire when I went to uni and was in an evangelical church that then became charismatic church as well got caught up with john wimber and stuff and um okay. <clears throat> you check the teeth. Uh, <laughs> i wondered okay. <laughs> that was my time up sorry <laughs> uh, jackie always does that to me no uh, yeah and i think that at that point when i i, I kind of really was switched on and felt like I had discovered the truth. There was absolutely no doubt about that. And now I was on a mission to, you know, convert as many people as possible. Yep. Um, having prayed the prayer, I suppose, multiple times on multiple occasions, mm. um, you know, or prayers of recommitment, <clears throat> you know, mm. they were quite into that sort of thing. I did plenty of, plenty of the re, recommitting. Apparently every week I uncommitted and needed to recommit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to share, Hannah? Yeah, it's hard to know how to describe it because I guess um, like I grew up, my early childhood was quite conservative Baptist and then um, late primary school my parents got involved with the John Wimber movement and became quite charismatic and I uh, in my uni years was very involved with Campus Crusade for Christ where I was one of those people that went around with like a like evangelistic booklet that like took people through steps and um, and then I ended up in Toronto in like the most wacky charismatic church in the world for a couple of years um, and as, as you guys were talking I was just thinking about how 
in all of those stages, I was absolutely certain that my theology was correct. Um, you know, it, it had changed and I didn't see the irony of like how much my faith expression had evolved, but I was still absolutely certain that the way I was doing it was the right way. Um, mm. And it's only now that I think I have the most oh, um, hopefully mature and you know reflective version of faith that I realise how little I know. And that was very destabilising because I guess I'd spent my life feeling very, very sure of myself um, I feel less terrified of, of not knowing now, but it has been a big journey of every different iteration of faith was dogmatic and right. And, you know, I had to tell everyone else because I had all the answers. And um, I think I started to have experiences like what Jackie said, um, where I remember, you know, a pastor in Toronto literally saying that there was a woman in the church in a wheelchair and that she could be healed if she wanted to, but she just doesn't want it enough. And I was like, that's not a thing that Jesus would say. And that was not the opinion of all the pastors, but that was a very um, significant catalyst. And there were lots of other things that made me start questioning faith. But, mm. yeah, that's a bit of my journey. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Jez. Uh, sorry, Hi, Jez. Uh, no, no worries, man. Just, uh, we're just starting by just, you know, reflecting on, I guess, how we thought about faith at an earlier stage in life or an earlier stage in faith, whether that was when we were a kid or even more recently, potentially, one thing that um, for me, looking back on um, my faith upbringing, and I'm, I'm, I try to be careful these days as well, not just to look back with judgment as, as similar to what Hannah was saying, there can almost be this sense of, well, now I understand. And, and there's like just a, a continued self-righteousness that we just move with us into whatever stage we're in. We look back at our younger self, not with self-compassion, but with uh, a sense of shame that I don't think is that helpful or healthy. Um, and we can look back on the others around us with a sense of judgment when, you know, they, they were at a stage in their growth and development, you know, we could take a kind view. But one thing that in my sort of growing up story of faith that I think about is, is that it was all about what you had in your head. It was all about the beliefs. And so this idea, a couple of those stories around healings, it was tricky when those sort of things happen because it's like, well, I just need to switch something on in my brain and just believe it. But you can't really change your beliefs that easily. I was reading about this this week and if I was to tell you guys to suddenly just believe that um, the earth was flat or just to believe that, you know, you can't just believe a statement by forcing yourself to, can you? Um, you know, if I was to tell you to believe that, this is actually water, um, the miracle has taken place, hasn't it? Definitely <laughs> um, wouldn't say that. He did it the other way around. <laughs> so um, if, if faith is just about belief, then as soon as you don't have the right stuff in your head, you feel like you've lost your faith. And I wonder if that's the best and most robust way of thinking about faith. I mean, for example, at earlier stages in my life, I would have been very critical of people that just went through the motions. Uh, you know, I grew up very suspicious of the Catholic Church. And one thing that I would say is that it's just all ritual. They're just going through the motions. They don't, they don't necessarily have the right, you know, beliefs or, or heart or something. Nowadays, I think, maybe some people's faith is, is really quite beautiful in that continued showing up even when 
well, this week I was, I believed it all. And this week I believed half of it. And this week I didn't know what I believed, but I kept showing up. That to me now seems like quite a beautiful and profound thing. Um, so I've been reading a book by Brian McLaren. Anybody else familiar with Brian and any of his work? He, um, he's great. I love his stuff. But, and he he's now does a lot of stuff with Richard Raw at the Centre for Action and Contemplation. But he, re- he recently wrote a book um, called Faith After Doubt, um, really kind of for, I guess, this moment where a lot of people are experiencing this. Although, again, it's important to remind ourselves that this is not the first time in human history that people have asked questions about their faith or have had their faith evolve and shift. That's actually something that's pretty normal. Um, but in the book, he outlines, he, he takes a whole bunch of different um theories of development, stages of faith that different people have models for. Um, One of the most famous ones is a guy named uh, Fowler, James Fowler, wrote something called Fowler Stages of Faith, but there's a bunch of these developmental kind of models of faith. So Brian has basically taken the best from a bunch of places, um, both in terms of sociologists, psychologists, theologians, and tried to create just a simple framework for thinking about the different stages of faith that we move through. So in his book, he basically kind of suggests integrating a bunch of research that there's four kind of main stages of faith that we move through. The first one is, is simplicity. And, and this is the childlike faith that is broken into right and wrong, good and bad, you know, uh, light and dark, very much um, dualistic. And, it's appropriate at that stage of life as you begin to understand the world in those kind of dualities. Um, You you can't really skip over that. That is where we start and that's outside of church as well. It's how we grow up viewing the world. Then we move into uh, a stage of complexity, which is where things become a little bit more pragmatic and um, we we begin to have more kind of complex arguments to validate what we believe. We might um, sit around in Bible studies and talk about how we can know for sure that we're saved and things like that. Um, And there's a lot of room within complexity and it's a stage of faith that some people stay in forever. Um, The next stage that he sort of puts forward is perplexity. So we move from simplicity to complexity to perplexity and in perplexity mm-hmm. it's where we're beginning to um, experience those those real deep doubts and questions and where we begin to become suspicious of some of the systems that we were raised within and we begin to see through the curtain kind of wizard of oz style and things don't look like how they used to look and we can become in that stage um you know the critical thinking um can lead us to want to tear down everything that now seems false. Um, And then he says that if we move through that, if we actually kind of journey with the doubt and if we integrate all the stages, because one thing he talks about is that as you move into each stage, you keep the stage before it. So you still have some simplicity within your complexity. You still have complexity within your perplexity, but ultimately the stage four that that people can move into is harmony where they integrate these things together and they're actually okay with some of the tensions 
and um, they they can uh, see things in a more non-dualistic way. Um, now I'm summarizing, you know, some big ideas pretty briefly, um, but this idea of stages of faith I think is really helpful because it allows us to see that um, it is natural for our doubt to disrupt and lead us into, uh, I guess, a new stage. Um, but if, and, and a lot of these models, right, what there's always a stage that looks like going backwards but is the path to going forwards, arguably. So a couple of other really simple models of this, I think Richard Raw talks about um, you have uh, order and then disorder and then reorder. Or you have orientation and then disorientation and then reorientation. But that middle stage or that painful stage, which kind of we could characterise as doubt, uh, can, can be the pathway towards harmony or towards reorientation or towards reorder. Um, as I'm just giving a brief bird's eye view of that stuff, what thoughts are coming up? Have you heard of systems like this before? Uh, is there a framework like this that's been helpful for you? Or, um, yeah, how does that strike you, just hearing some of that? My first thought was, do we really have to go through a simplicity stage? I mean, none of, none of us can go back to where we were at that stage now. But, you know, in our postmodern world, where very, very few people believe in absolutes, black and white, have we not, have we not grown up enough to be able to sort of avoid that stage. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a simple childlike faith is appropriate for a child because cognitively they can't handle too much, too much gray. Fine. But for an adult, mm -hmm. I mean, do we, should, you know, the suggestion is that if somebody wants to become a Christian, they must go through this simple childlike step. And I'm, I, I would question that. Oh, yeah, I, I, would, I would agree that um, there, I think that that's, that is kind of mapping on as well to just developmental stages of, you know, being a child, being an adolescent. So typically stage one would be more of a childhood faith. Some people don't outgrow it, but it's an interesting question. I mean, if you came to faith as a wise and seasoned 50-year-old, um, I'm sure that your faith is not going to look um, like that black and white dualistic stage one. Well, potentially for some people it would, but I think I probably agree with you that you, you would have already, even if you didn't have the language of a particular faith tradition, by that stage in life you've probably already been through the stages of dualistic thinking into more complex thinking, potentially into some more critical thinking. So you could probably come, you, you know, one thing that Brian says that I quite like and some of what Hannah was saying made me think of it is sometimes people make, he calls them lateral transfers where we get fed up with our system. We might be in a stage two complex faith. We get fed up with being Baptist or Christian or something 
And so we slide sideways into whether it's another religion or whether it's secular humanism or atheism or whatever, but we actually haven't necessarily um, changed our model of thinking. We've just changed where we apply some of the same patterns of thinking. I've definitely seen this in people that went super, I I remember this kid that um, incredibly passionate 18-year-old evangelist, couple months later, he's the most passionate atheist, you know, sharing it's just he took exactly the same communication style and exactly the same black and white approach and he just shifted where he did it. So I think, you know, theoretically we, we do that as well where we move sideways rather than necessarily forwards. That makes me think of like I guess the implication of that that structure you're talking about is that there's some sort of forward momentum. Um and I, I just wonder if there are some people who just stay in that same level of like um, belief that everything they think is correct forever and uh, mm. it doesn't go deeper or they don't have a reimagining of faith because it was literal and it started and it continues to be. And is that, oh, I guess I would say like a lot of the, the experience of Christian culture I've come up against is, is that's a majority of people that, we are absolutely dogmatic in this thinking. Any questioning is threatening, so we will be like this forever. And I mm. guess, like, I could think of grandparents who still mm. are probably in that mindset. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So what what is that about? And and how do people avoid any of that unpacking of, of truth? Yeah. So um, why do you think somebody would, What what are the benefits of of that stage one or stage two faith what do you think are the in terms of psychology or community or like what are some of the things that you can see are actually working for people in those stages well it'd be very reassuring wouldn't it and um i think it's appealing to see the world in black and white because you think you know everything and there's nothing unexpected and um nothing that's destabilizing your worldview i guess there'd be appeal in that Mm. Yeah, I guess it gives sure. people a sense of control if, you know, and, you know, and, and that it's not destabilising, especially if other things in the world are very unstable. Mm. Um, yeah. And arguably we all, um, it's this idea that we, as we grow, we, we include what we've been through and transcend is the kind of language. So we bring it with us but we also move beyond it but what that means is that um we still have within us those earlier stages and if you're in a a heightened or stressed state or like there are times where i want to see the world as black and white because of where i'm at and what's happening around me and i can go back there quite easily so it's not like you arrive at uh i guess harmony or enlightenment or whatever you want to call it and you just cruise control um there's a fluidity to all of this as well which i think is you know i sometimes revert back to what i would now generally think i don't want to see the world that way anymore but it's that's still within me i wonder if it's a bit more rather than being a lineal Thing where we progress from one to the other in a straight line forwards like it, it when you describe it like that like hannah said it, it 
gives a sense of trajectory, whether it's more circular. Mm. If at any point we might be at any one of those stages on a different aspect of faith or non-faith. Mm. And, you know, it's a bit like, um, I mean, there's lots of things, you know, this whole pattern is reminding me of, of group dynamics. The same thing happens, you form mm. and then you norm and then you storm and then you start performing as a group. Mm. Or so it's the same kind of thing. Or um, if you're in, you know, in for all of us, it's a, used in therapy, but for all of us, we go through a kind of denial stage and then a contemplative stage and then a, we might move to action and then or contemplating you know and then and then to actually doing it and and I guess it, it's similar and, and in that sense you know we might be in a different place for lots of different things in our life we're not always in denial or we're not always in that simplistic view of life um yeah so I wonder yeah if it's more kind of in a cycle Absolutely. or a spiral or something. I don't know. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Could be in like age all at once. And, and I think um, Brian in this book as well, he talks about the idea that you, it, it is like a spiral because after harmony, there's a new simplicity, which leads into a new complexity because the questions that you have change, but you, you kind of do discover that there's an ever growing, um, the the more it's that whole thing of the more that you know the more you realize you don't know mm. and so it's it is kind of a, a a constantly slowly circling um yeah i appreciate that yeah well i'm interested as well hannah um open question for all of us but if we think about why some people don't move from this stage to this stage there's there's what was working over here which might have been security it might have been assurance What's the cost of moving from, you know, that stage into a stage of greater mystery and potential confusion? What are some of the reasons that that would stop you from wanting to, I guess, grow? But if you maybe don't see it that way, if you're kind of, it's just a big foggy question mark, what would stop people from wanting to do that? Well, I was actually talking about this today with some colleagues about the fact that um, we seem to have, you know, lost the ability in society to have reasoned disagreement. You know, it just it seems to descend very fast into shouting and flame wars and, and all the rest. And, and, and one of the reasons that you can't just change your beliefs or change your position whether it's about climate change or whether you know Trump is a good guy or whatever it might be, it's because your identity is tied up with it. So if your identity is tied up with your beliefs, that's threatening. If somebody is threatening to pull the rug on from under you, mm. you know, they're <clears throat> what they're saying is you've constructed a fiction, your life is a fiction, your beliefs are a fiction. All this stuff you've been saying and doing in church for the last however many years it might be, it could be decades, 
was really childish and you, it's time to grow up, right? Now, that's a pretty threatening, undermining thing to have to deal with, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's your identity. And it makes you feel like an idiot and, um, you know, all sorts of unsettling things. Mm. It's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I guess I've been doing a lot of contemplating of, of the, the difference between um, faith and culture. And I guess a lot of the conversations we're having are, are around cultural shifts. It's not so much asking questions, but uh, feeling comfortable in, in spaces that are predictable and that everyone is buying into this idea. So if you are starting to ask questions, then stakeholders are threatened and the way of life we're familiar with is, is at risk. And I guess like we've institutionalised faith a lot. So if churches start asking big questions, then you might lose a lot of support and income and um, community. And so I guess that's it, isn't it? It's like your very way of life is threatened if you start to pull at the threads a bit. And I think that's why we see such institutional resistance because it is not just a personal faith thing, it's, it's identity and it's um, the collaborative spaces we've built, that faith around that if, if they're gone, then a whole chunk of life is gone as well. Yeah. And if you haven't been, um, if you haven't sort of had it either role modelled or explained that it's actually normal to go through stages where things feel like they're falling apart, in order to come back together in a new way, if that hasn't been part of your conception of faith, it's kind of going back to the beginning, how we think about it, then we don't want to go near that because that doubt is the enemy. If faith, if we've only been taught that faith is about assurance and certainty, then doubt could get me in hell. You know, doubt could. Um, and you, I really appreciated the, the honest and vulnerable nature of your questions that last time, Hannah, that kind of niggling voice, like, what if I'm wrong about this? What if my old, you know, evangelical beliefs were actually true and I have somehow drifted off the path as terrifying consequences? So you can kind of see why, um, why people would want to avoid that process, particularly if it hasn't been normalised or um, if there hasn't been permission, um, which uh, here's a great little quote um, from Brian, I've got a few of them that um, we can just scatter throughout, but he says, um, it's hard enough having doubts. It's impossibly hard to have them and feel you must pretend that you don't. <laughs> right now, let's grant one another permission to doubt and let's see the doubt in ourselves and each other, not as a fault or failure to be ashamed of, but as an inescapable dimension of having faith and being human and more as an opportunity for honesty courage virtue and growth including growth in faith itself i think it's those qualities are a beautiful list because it does take courage to actually follow your doubts and to be unsure of the outcome um, it does take real honesty and i really value honesty in the journey of faith where people are actually willing to say I'm not sure if I believe this or I think this bit's a load of crap or, um, or honestly, this has been my experience of God that I can't let go of. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, I think those qualities are worth pursuing even if they, they lead us into some discomfort. Um, and arguably, I guess the crux of the kind of 
the relationship between faith and doubt, if we've learnt to see them as enemies and faith is the virtuous option, we will avoid doubt at all costs. But arguably doubt is the pathway into growing into the the next stage or, or the renewed faith comes from healthy and appropriate doubt. So it's a reframing on doubt is actually my ally in growing up because when I doubt, and, and you could look at this in any field, right, like scientists have to take a sort of doubtful position to be able to test, have we actually understood things right? Is there another way of, of looking at this or is there a new hypothesis to test? So uh, any thoughts sparked by just this possible relationship or this healthy maybe tug of war between faith and doubt i like it i think it's really reassuring but then i comes you know this the story in the bible of when jesus appears to thomas and he's kind of the message i interpreted from that was you loser for doubting um, <laughs> i'm going to publicly shame you um and then the message will be from the bible in the bible forevermore that any doubt means that like you are not proper follower of me so how do we reconcile those stories too with with you know it feels very human to doubt and grow and I I think that resonates um emotionally but then I keep coming up against things like I think the bible well the way I've I've had it taught to me is very anti-doubt yes except the book of Job I think that was a real eye-opener for me that true because I I identified, I think, in my early faith days with the guys who gave Job reasons for why uh, why this happened. And everything that they said to him, I thought, yep, that could come out of my mouth. <laughs> and so, you know, to find God at the end, say, no, he's right, boys, and you guys are right off the mark. And, and here was Job questioning and, I guess, stating his innocence all the way through but yeah this faith and doubt uh, I think I put a quote in from that book that we read um, Hannah that that you read and I published it yeah uh, you know and it was about where she realized the author realized that her her doubt was as strong an argument as the arguments put by her parents who were very firm in their belief and absolutely determined that they are right. I have a real problem because we have a number of people that we know are like that and I I have really struggled spending serious time with them. Um, I can see it and it's purely because of that because they see me, they, they see doubt as you're on a slippery slope, Pete. And, and I come back and say, well, just explain this to me. And, of course, they can't other than, you know, in some cases, other than, well, you're the one on the slippery slope. You've just got to believe that God's got all this in control. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are many occasions that I see that I can't see any way that this could be um, to their benefit, you know, that God has got some purpose. And I don't want to make myself bigger than God, but, uh, well, look, it was like that tough example that 
I, I quoted um, on, on the church too with the woman who died, who was killed. Mm. You know, I don't know how you explain something like that. I thought that um, Rachel's answer was the best answer that you could give. Saint Rach. Yep, love love it for it, Rach. When you listen to it, when you listen to this too. Mm. Anyway, that's our journey. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I appreciate the reminder that the Book of Job is in the Bible, Pete, um, and and we could point to a whole bunch of the Psalms um, and Ecclesiastes, and arguably all of the disciples um, doubted. Like, even you could say that. Um, they had to actually doubt their previous worldview to follow Jesus and that doubt actually was part of the mechanism for growth even into an early stage of Christian faith. Um, Paul Paul had to doubt and, and totally like uh, Paul's conception of a, a totally renewed way of thinking about his Jewish roots that, again, included and transcended, you could actually argue he's kind of the OG of the, the doubt leading into the new thing. Um, here's, here's another quote that's very, very on theme. Um, this is from my good pal Pete Enns, who I've probably quoted at each of these things, but he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty, and he kind of makes this argument in the book that God doesn't want certainty from us because certainty does stop us from growing. Certainty stops us from seeing the new thing. Certainty stops us from actually um, asking the kind of questions that lead us into wisdom and maturity. Um, But he says, um, I believe that the Bible does not model a faith that depends on certainty for the simple fact that the Bible does not provide that kind of certainty. Rather, in all its messy diversity, the Bible models trust in God that does not rest on whether we are able to be clear and certain about what to believe. In fact, the words belief and faith in the Bible are just different ways of saying trust. And trust works regardless of where our knowing happens to be. Any thoughts on that one? I like that. Mm. Can you stick those in our WhatsApp group at some point, please? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, read over them again. Absolutely. So the big idea that... I took from that book and I read that book a few years ago when I was, you know, on staff as a pastor, but really kind of wondering often like, what do I believe? <laughs> um, and, and the feeling, I like what Simon said today, certainly feeling like there was still a core, but that core seemed to be getting like winnowed down and uh, kind of wondering how many things can I afford to lose uh, around the edges. But um, I read this book and the idea was just, you know, faith is not about the number of doctrinal statements you can agree with in your head. Um, thanks, Hannah. I'll, we'll catch you soon. Um, it's actually about um, trust, which is a relational, you know, even in our, if we think about trust in our human relationships, it's not about what's in our head. It's about um a belief that translates into um, our actions, even if we, like, you know, I, I could not say for certain that my wife loves me. Um, that's always a trusting position to hold for any of us. We, all, we have to trust that the people who love us are telling the truth. Um, 
So again, it's not about certainty, it's about trust. But yeah, how does that kind of reframe sit with you or what thoughts does it bring to the surface? How would it change if you conceived of faith as trust? I find that quite helpful, yeah. Um, because, you know, I can tie myself in intellectual knots and I can unpick one by one the things I used to believe and no longer believe. And it, it can become, it can become a sort of a very intellectual exercise. And, um, and as you said right at the beginning, Will, if, if, if having a faith is about what you believe and it's all in your head, well, we can always pick that apart and say, oh, well, you know, when you, when you prayed that prayer, you know, you had a terribly childish, uh, naive understanding. So, you know, but people pray that prayer, I suppose, with a sense of trust as well, don't they? Um, mm. and, and, and they couldn't possibly go to battle with a theologian who would just dismantle them bit by bit. But trust is different. Trust is definitely about an interpersonal kind of relationship. Mm. Yeah, I find that an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> to think about. <laughs> but yeah. yeah I, I think trust is where I want to be. Um, rather than faith and doubt, because there's a natural... process of um i don't know getting a vision of of what you think things might be like and then all of a sudden finding yourself in confused but but trust sits right above both of those uh, and in a weird way that's what i was trying to get at when i i talked about you know, going to Ziklag, don't go without God. Mm. To me, the concept of questioning is is not a problem at all, provided that you've got God in that discussion. Well, that's that's where I see trust is. You know, my trust is is just in the connection there for Him to open my eyes. Because I'm really seeking the truth here. I'm not trying to find a way that's contrary to his, his will. But all the evidence in my eyes points that it's not the way I've been told quite often. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I used the example at the beginning as well of the, uh, the person who's kind of going through the motions or it appears as though they're going through the motions. And I think that um, trust is, again, maybe a helpful framework for thinking about what it means to continue to do the things that on some level um, you, you, you kind of sense that there's something about continuing to show up in this relationship or continuing to take this bread and wine or continuing to um, believe that there's love at the centre of the universe um, Trust kind of, it, it, it sort of knocks that belief down. It, it includes some level of head, but it knocks it down into your, into your actions, into your life. And I think that there's a level of, you know, I mean, I, as a philosophy major, like 
it's trust all the way down, right? Like it's trust that I'm going to get out of my bed tomorrow morning and the floor's not going to drop out beneath me. I actually can't have any kind of certainty that um, I'm not in the matrix or in a dream or, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So exactly like Simon was pointing out, the intellectual knots um, are unavoidable for any human being. Um, so we need something deeper. We need something that that can actually, again, include that aspect of us, but also allow us to go on the days when we're not sure what we believe or we're not sure how it all adds up. I'm still going to move in the direction of what love looks like or what embodied love um, entails with the best that I understand that at this point in time. And, I mean, I just think at the centre, one of the central pieces of my Christian faith that I continue to use as a framework for all of life is the death and resurrection is not just a one-time event, but, again, there are parts of faith that are continuously being um they're dying in order to resurrect the new. And I feel like that's something that happens just again at every level of the universe, you know, as cells pass away and new ones come into being and seasons pass and things sort of die to create room for the new growth. And, um, yeah, I think that can be another helpful image as we think about our faith as a constant. It doesn't just die, like part of the Christian hope is that what, what passes away, what dies, what gets left behind creates room for renewal and resurrection um, and hope that there's something on the other side of a moment of doubt or um, the darkest kind of night of the soul type thing. Mm. Well, won't take too much more of your Wednesday evening, but... Um, it's, it's great to be able to hold the space together, I think, to ask the question, what does it look like to even be a community that uh, is a faith community that creates healthy room for doubt is a challenging thing to do. And arguably, um, churches uh, and many organisations actually would thrive at those one and two, the level of simplicity and complexity. It's much easier to rally people around that it's much easier to raise funds when things are in those stages. Um, it's actually hard to build community in a stage of kind of perplexity, confusion and doubt because well, why would I show up to anything or why would I kind of bother? But I, I believe that there's really something beautiful about walking through that together. And, man, I like reading reading Rachel's stuff in, in the WhatsApp group and just the, the way that we are encouraging each other um, really feels to me like uh, there's such beauty even in the the pain of of doubt and um, in growing together in this space. So privileged to be able to do that tonight, but also just more widely, I appreciate the space we create for each other to do that in a lot of different ways. Mm. Uh, interesting. Mm. Thanks. Thanks uh, for that, Will. No worries. Yeah. Anybody else have any final things you wanted to share or any final insights, um, even uh, thoughts around what it might look like, you know, to continue to allow doubt and um, trust to be part of what happens next for you? There might not be anything, but I want to just make sure that, yeah, there's a little bit of room if anybody else had anything else to share. 
Yeah, I think it'll be interesting moving through this doubt so that it's not some perpetual thing that we are sort of stuck in. And coming out of, out of church for so many years, for me personally, sitting there, looking at the whole congregation and thinking, do all these people that I know to be intelligent, thinking people, are they just accepting this? Do they, do they believe this? When I, for so long, had doubts mm. and feeling that they're just a real negative thing, I think it's really, I couldn't have believed that we'll be sitting around with a group of people talking about this when for so long I just thought, okay, don't really believe this, but here I am, sort of thing. And, mm. and I often wonder what everybody's view of God is. Every one of us now probably sees God as something very different. You know, it's, it's a difficult thing to picture. Yeah. There's a good topic for another evening. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> No, thanks, Sarah. I appreciate those thoughts. Both, both that doubt is not the end. You know, I heard in what you said that it, doubt's not the place you want to live forever, and I completely agree with that. But also it's not a place to be avoided at all costs. So how can we learn to actually healthily have all things in their right place? Yeah. I actually find it really encouraging to hear that other people have doubts because then you know you're not alone and yeah. there's hope that there's a path to walk on you know like if if you if I, i'm doubting and i feel like i'm the only person and somehow i've fallen off the edge of the cliff and if i've fallen off the edge of the cliff like there's probably not much to save me you know um whereas actually if you're walking the path with other people who are also showing but as long as you don't like just pull each other down mm. but you know say okay let's like let's go and explore this path that's ahead you know you've got someone you know you're kind of groundbreaking so mm. um i think well i'd like at some point to hear from people what what their certainties are uh, i mean i i've been thinking of my life i can think of about three events where i felt god in a sense, using the old terminology, revealed himself in quite a powerful way. And they were, they were events that um, he didn't need to. And they weren't self-serving events. They were just really special moments. So trying to get and reconcile those, those moments sometimes with the moments of doubt that I have um, you know, just listening to Sarah say, look, I don't want to be in a doubting frame for the rest of my life, although I'm suspicious that might be my case. <laughs> um, but, but it's tinged with real moments of blessedness, and I want to balance the doubt with those moments of blessedness, if any of that makes sense. Mm. Well, maybe we can be certain about our doubt. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, yeah, true, true. <laughs> There's... Um, Perhaps doubt's the only thing we can be certain of. Yeah. Uh, taxes. <laughs> I think I think this is why we have psalms. Personally, like they they um, 
in a in a way that seems almost offensively um, mashed together. Um, you know, I often talk about Psalm 89, which the same psalm has, I will sing of God's great love forever. And where, O Lord, is your great love? Like both of those phrases in the same piece of poetic prayer. Um, psalm 23 even, you know, God's helping me to lay down in these beautiful green fields and leading me beside quiet waters, and yet I'm also walking through the valley of darkness like the same images are like jammed together, the valley of darkness and the quiet waters, um, which is reassuring because often I feel like I love the image of the calm inner soul and just the, the monastery, but it's like I'm, I'm in the monastery as well as being in the valley of darkness and I'm in the presence of God, but I'm also very, very filled with human anxiety and uncertainty and, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. And that's okay. That's, that's actually healthy human spirituality. It's, it's arguably the only kind we have access to. Um, yeah. I'll, I've got one, one last quote that's maybe a bit, of a, a bit of a blessing for us and then I'll, I'll pray a quick prayer if that's okay. But um, this is also from, from Pete Enns and he says, doubt is sacred. Doubt is God's instrument will arrive in God's time and will come from unexpected places, places out of your control. And when it does, resist the fight or flight impulse, pass through it patiently, honestly, and courageously for however long it takes. True transformation takes time. And I think that's pretty, pretty, um, pretty spot on. Let me, uh, let me say a little prayer for us. Um, God, I thank you for... Um, the invitation to see faith and doubt as friends and not enemies um, and for the possibility of a faith that is built on uh, trust rather than intellectual certainty. And I pray for myself and um, these friends um, this evening and any others who will engage with this conversation that you would give us um, the patience, the courage, the willingness to be honest, um, as well as the, the reassurance that we do need. Uh, we can't just live in a state of perpetual doubt, but help us to have uh, the kind of relationship with us that does lead us into growth and into new spaces and, and into resurrection as parts of us and our faith maybe pass away and die. Um, we do pray that we'd be able to see the new life that is possible in that space as well. Amen. Wonderful. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your week. Feel free to keep the thoughts uh, pinging around the WhatsApp group or, you know, with each other, you know, as, as you want. Um, it's good stuff to be able to grow together through it. Yeah, great. Thank you. Hello, I want to keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>